Chapter 5. Clown's Blessing At the end of 1999, Steve Richards, Slipknot's manager, and Sharon Osborne, the wife of Ozzy Osborne and producer of OzFest, had lunch in Los Angeles and agreed that Slipknot would headline the second stage on OzFest 2000. They shook on it. Sharon Osborne had already become one of the biggest players in music by then and was known to be ruthless. She had resurrected Ozzy's career in the 1980s after he got fired from Black Sabbath, stealing him from her own father's management company. Sharon's father, Don Arden, was a legend in the music business in England. He managed Little Richard, Small Faces, and Black Sabbath, and was known to be a cutthroat character. But Sharon took him on, and Ozzy's solo career and Ozfest were proof of her skill in developing talent. She would become even bigger, a household name. A few years down the road with reality shows like The Osbournes, America's Got Talent, The X Factor, and her talk show, The Talk. But back in 1999, Ozfest was still establishing itself and securing Slipknot to headline the second stage was a key part of her plans. Slipknot had been the breakout stars of the previous Ozfest and had rocketed from obscurity to stardom. When we met with Steve Martin, the managing director of the agency group, he told us about Slipknot and Ozfest, but said he didn't think it was a done deal. At least contracts hadn't been signed yet. Steve Martin and Dave Kirby, the agency group agent representing Slipknot, did not get along. Slipknot was Kirby's first big act, and Martin thought Kirby was too wrapped up in the band and had forgotten who he really worked for. Touring and recording artists are a tightly controlled commodity, and everyone is jockeying for a financial piece and their bit of control. Typically, an established artist has a manager who oversees the entire enterprise, an agent who is responsible for booking live appearances, and a public relations firm for publicity and image control. Then there is a merchandiser who handles all the t-shirts and swag, a record company A&R person who coordinates recordings, a person who produces their recordings, a road manager, a road crew, and on and on. Established bands effectively have a moat around them. But Slipknot's rise had been fast. A few years earlier, they were unknowns traveling in a van. Now they had a debut album that had sold a million copies, and everyone was fighting for a piece of them. Their moat was still being dug and hadn't been filled with water. Steve Martin said the band's manager, Steve Richards, was prone to changing his mind and that it would be worth it to approach him. As a courtesy, we first met with Slipknot's agent, Dave Kirby, who was cold as ice and pissed he even had to see us. I couldn't blame him. He'd finally gotten his first big breakout band and new stature with Sharon Osbourne and Ozfest, and now we'd come along wanting to throw a wrench in the works. Kirby was firmly against it and established a roadblock to the band. Steve Martin suggested we do an end run around it and go directly to the band. Zukowski told me that this was highly unusual, and he posited that the rift between Martin and Kirby was deep, and Martin wanted to exert more control over Slipknot. Slipknot were playing in Washington, D.C. at the end of January, and their manager would be there, so we made a plan to go. But first, we headed to New York to see Hank Schiffmacher's lecture at the American Museum of Natural History's Tattoo Exhibition in New York, the first major exhibition featuring body art by a top museum. The exhibition was called Body Art, Marks of Identity, and featured the art and anthropology of body modification with a focus on paintings, books, history, and body art itself. 
They presented artifacts dating back thousands of years as well as the first book to ever mention body art, Anthrometamorphosis, Man Transformed, or The Artificial Changeling, which was published in 1650. Sean Vasquez had helped arrange some of the artist's panels, and we were both featured in the short film that accompanied the exhibit. Hank's lecture was well-received, and his knowledge of tattoo origins on each continent was impressive. For example, as soon as ancient people formed civilizations, they had begun to decorate and modify their bodies, and Hank's descriptions were vivid and illuminating. There was a party for Hank at Sean's shop afterwards, and Zukoski and Hank got a chance to meet. We filled Hank in on what's going on with Slipknot, and he agreed to come with us to D.C. to see the band. The drive down to D.C. was a lot of laughs and a real education for Zukoski about tattoo culture, tattoo artists, and the challenges we were facing working with them. Zukoski noted that tattoo artists, unlike successful musicians or fine artists, have no management. We laughed at how insane the music business would be if the musicians didn't have management as if it wasn't insane enough. We stopped at what turned out to be an Ethiopian-owned Italian restaurant in Maryland with incredible chicken parmesan, which we took as a good omen. Slipknot were playing at the 500-seat DC venue, 930 Club, and they were insane. Nine of them in matching numbered jumpsuits and creepy horror masks, like the most demented marching band ever. I'd never seen or heard anything like it, and I'd seen and heard some shit. Hank said the same thing and thought it ironic that I was planning a show on body art while the band I wanted to sign wore jumpsuits that covered every inch of exposed flesh. My original idea had been a mainstream Woodstock vibe celebration of body art. If Slipknot headlined Tattoo the Earth, it would be like Satan's house band playing the apocalypse. And that was cool. I learned early on that it didn't matter what I wanted. It was about what the kids wanted. And from my field work going to concerts, I discovered that the kids wanted to feel like they belonged to something, and they wanted cool shit. Zukoski didn't know what to make of the band. He thought they were a gimmick, but I thought there was more to it. Slipknot didn't move me, but I respected the devotion their fans had for the band, and vice versa, and the craft and alchemy that went into making something so chaotic and affecting. Slipknot's manager, Steve Richards, was expecting us, and we spoke with him right after the show. He was in his early 30s and had the same hustler energy as the vomiting demographic. He and Zukoski had both grown up in the D.C. area and had much in common. Richard's father was a local DJ and he and Zukoski had done some shows together in Maryland in the 1980s. When he and Paul finished chatting, he called his father and a few minutes later came bounding back over to us. My father said, you're a stand-up guy, Richard said enthusiastically. He said, you're a person I should be in business with, and we should talk seriously about Tattoo the Earth. He took all of us onto the tour bus where Hank held court with the band. He took a look at their tattoos and talked about the ancient history of masks in entertainment and culture. Unmasked and out of costume, they were all young, sweaty Midwestern kids finishing the night's work and were welcoming and approachable. Richard said we should send him an offer, and a few days later we did, doubling what Ozfest had offered. Then, nothing happened. I kept an organizer during that time, and for much of February and March, many days had only clusterfuck written in it. I was in the midst of my seasonal depression, and Dave Kirby was stalling. And the longer he stalled, the better chance he stood of writing out our offer. Finally, Zukoski pushed the issue, and we had a lunch with Richards and Kirby. 
Richard said he wanted to do the tour and wanted to bring it to the band as an alternative to Ozfest. Kirby had done everything he could to stop us, but he could only block us for so long before Richards would get pissed off. The next day, Zukowski spoke to Slipknot's leader, Sean Crahan, and also by the name of his stage persona, Clown, and he gave us his blessing. He told Zukowski that Slipknot had never taken a traditional path and that the renegade spirit of our tour made sense for them. He also said to Zukowski what he would say to me later on, my manager made all this happen, and I do what my manager tells me to do. A week later, I was in L.A. to meet with Richards and his publicist, and a week after that, there was an article in the Los Angeles Times and Boston Globe announcing that Slipknot was doing Tattoo the Earth, followed by coverage on MTV. I had been averaging 20 or so visitors to the Tattoo the Earth website each day. After the announcements, we started getting 100,000 a day. It was fucking righteous to see Tattoo the Earth come to life. On a conference call with Richards, Kirby, and Clown, we discussed the other bands we wanted to do the tour. One concern, and a valid one, was that Slipknot had never headlined an arena tour. They had barely graduated from clubs to theaters, let alone anchored a summer festival, and we agreed we needed a strong co-headliner. We sent out letters of interest to all the other agencies and put offers to Metallica and Rage Against the Machine. Both declined. Zukowski felt that if we didn't get a strong co-headliner, Kirby would be able to convince Richards that our show was too risky and he'd bail and go back to Ozfest. Needless to say, Sharon Osbourne was pissed. She'd lost her second stage headliner, a band with a lot of buzz as well as several of the new hot bands that were planning to jump ship to be on our tour with Slipknot. Richards had shaken her hand, and he'd fucked her over, and she was having none of it. Zukowski knew Kirby was keeping a channel of communication open with Sharon, but Richards was holding firm with us. We put an offer to Slayer, one of the original thrash metal bands, to come up in the 80s. Metallica, Megadeth, and Slayer are considered the cornerstone of hard metal. They were a band with a loyal following and a strong touring history, and we wanted them to co-headline the main stage. We also put offers in to the Brazilian band Sepultura, another of the older hard metal bands, and Cold Chamber, a goth band that had recently released a well-received second album. We were starting to move quickly. Just as we were getting ready to announce some bands, Steve Richards got a brain tumor. I truly felt bad for Richards, but I also knew we were fucked. Zukowski knew it too. Zukowski had been speaking to Richards constantly and now Richards had had brain surgery and was completely off the radar. Richards rented a house in Malibu to convalesce, and Zukowski decided to move out there for a few weeks to help with his recovery, stay close to him, and keep him connected to Tattoo the Earth. As Richards started to improve, he and Zukowski formed a strong bond. Zukowski liked him, and even though Richards had a reputation for being unreliable, Zukowski also felt he could trust him. We announced Slayer, Sepultura, and Cold Chamber, and then we found out Metallica wanted to partner for a show at Giant Stadium. They were headlining their own summer tour, but the support bands on the tour, including Korn and Kid Rock, were not available to do the New York show. Metallica were not quite big enough to carry Giant Stadium by themselves anymore, and the idea was to combine Metallica with our show. It was a major development for us, but it was almost June, our first show was July 15th, and we hadn't announced any dates or put tickets on sale. 
When we finally put the 38 dates on our website and made it official, Sharon Osbourne became even more livid. Half of our dates were in Clear Channel venues and Ozfest was in business with them. Clear Channel and its ancestors had changed live music by purchasing the majority of venues across the U.S., arenas, amphitheaters, and concert halls, and used that leverage to break the competition. Before Clear Channel, there had been multiple promoters in all major markets, and for the most part, the venues were open to anyone. Once Clear Channel had all the venues, they could make deals with artists that independent promoters and local venues could not. They could offer, say, Dave Matthews or Bruce Springsteen all the proceeds from their own ticket sales and still make a fortune on t-shirts, parking, and beer. If you didn't own a venue, there was no way to compete, and that killed off most of the independent promoters. They also owned hundreds of thousands of billboards and thousands of radio stations and kept our bands off their radio stations, and that hurt in some markets. The promoter of our Red Rock show would later sue Clear Channel for keeping our bands off the radio. They were everywhere and owned everything. In short order, Sharon Osborne got Clear Channel to rescind all of our dates except for one, a parking lot in Detroit. We felt lucky to still have the 18 remaining shows, though the routing looked like it was done by a drunk throwing darts at a map. Days off between shows on a tour kill you financially, and now we had holes in the schedule that couldn't be filled. I ran into Kevin Lyman, founder of Warp Tour, at a show, and he wasn't happy. What the hell are you doing? He asked me. You just dropped your tour on top of me, and now I've got you playing right before or after my dates. What am I supposed to do, sit it out? I asked him. We tried to sell this to CAA, and if they had bought it, we wouldn't be having this discussion right now. He wasn't having it, and he wasn't wrong. There were several markets where Tattoo the Earth, Ozfest, and Warp Tour played on successive nights, and that wasn't good for anyone. Most of the dates Clear Channel had pulled were amphitheaters, and since they owned the majority of them, we were left with 18 shows in alternative venues like rodeos, parking lots, parks, and racetracks. Plus, we were starting out on the West Coast, but we had to get back east for the Giant Stadium show in five days and could only fit in one show before heading back west where we would finish up in California. It was a mess, and it cost us a lot. But the Metallica show was worth it just for the cachet. I fell to my knees in tears when I heard Howard Stern announce that Metallica were going to tattoo the earth at Giant Stadium on July 20th, 2000. And it was surreal hearing the ad spot I wrote promoting the Boston show on the radio. This crusade is going to leave its mark. Bzzz, ouch. Tattoo the earth. Sean was at Coney Island one day and saw a plane pulling a banner that read Metallica, Tattoos the Earth. Fucking Scott! He screamed as the plane flew by. The tour's routing may have been a disaster, but we were officially on the map and now we had to go into overdrive to promote the shows. Ozfest announced their dates in March, we announced ours in the middle of June, and still didn't have all the dates locked in or a firm main stage lineup. The second stage bands were already set because the record companies paid to have their band on the tour, as was standard practice for festivals and tours. It was an effective way for a record company to get a new band exposure, and they considered it a marketing expense. For us, it helped defray the cost of having to overpay for all the main stage bands, an unavoidable cost of doing business for a debut tour. 
One day, Zukowski said he had a call set up with a record executive who wanted to get his band systematic on the second stage, and Zukowski asked if I'd like to join him on the call. Listen, Lars, Zukowski started off after introducing me. I appreciate your enthusiasm for Tattoo the Earth, but our lineup is set. These shows are only so many hours long, and if I could fit your band in, believe me, I would. There just isn't room. As soon as Lars started speaking, I realized it was Lars Ulrich, Metallica's drummer, and that Systematic was on his record label. Zukowski had no idea who Lars was, and I had no way to get in touch with Zukowski. Texting wasn't a thing back then, and didn't want to interrupt. I just listened as he basically told Lars to take a hike. Are you going to be at the Giant Stadium show? Zukowski asked him. Uh, yeah, Lars replied haltingly. Why don't you come by and introduce yourself at the show and we can talk about getting your band on for next year? Zukowski couldn't believe it when I phoned him after the call and thought he blew it. Lars must have thought Zukowski was so badass he didn't care what the headliner wanted. Systematic were added to the second stage roster the next day. With the dates official, I started working on getting tattoo permits for the markets we were playing and every state was different. Tattooing was still illegal in Massachusetts, so there could be no tattooing of any kind at that show. Several of the states required a brief training for the artists and inspections of our workspaces. Kansas was the toughest. Others just needed us to file a permit. They all wanted money. And I spent hours every day on the phone buried under paper as I navigated arcane state rules and statutes. We invested in equipment to make sure we were compliant and safe. Autoclaves, sterilizers, and everything we needed to set up a sterilization tent, which sounds worse than it was. The plan was for each tattoo artist to have their own space. We bought some sturdy surplus army tents, standing air conditioners for all the tents, chairs, workstations, and lighting. Our roster of tattoo artists was formidable. Unfortunately, Hank Schiffmacher wasn't one of them. He sent me an email with ideas for how the tour bus should be a hangout and became insulted when I told him his dog, Shotzi, wouldn't be able to come on the road with us. I like Shotzi, but if anyone was bringing a dog, it was going to be me, and I wasn't bringing one. Hank replied with a diatribe about what an insult it was and how he was the only one who could represent tattooing and new tattooing and on and on. When I showed the email to the other tattoo artists, they decided to vote Hank off the tour. His ego was always going to be a challenge on the road, but I wanted him there, and now that wasn't going to happen. Sean decided that we should have four tattoo artists traveling with us for the tour and arranged to add local artists and markets where there were good ones. Bernie Luther and Philip Liu would be the guest artists on the first half. Philip Liu was arguably the most acclaimed tattoo artist in the world at the time, and getting him was a huge coup. His wife, Tatine, a painter, traveled with him. Jack Rudy and Gil Monty, both old-school artists from the West Coast, would be the guest artists for the second half of the tour. Sean and Paul Booth, whose macabre black-and-gray artistry was a favorite of metal bands and would be on the entire tour. Paul Booth was one of the most popular tattoo artists in the world and had been instrumental in getting Philip Liu to commit to the tour. He had tattooed the members of Slayer, and our bands were already asking about getting appointments with him. He looked like one of Satan's sidekicks, portly, dressed all in black, long black dreads, nose ring, and an attitude that terrified those who didn't know him. He was a big softy underneath. Booth had bought a house in a quiet New Jersey suburb and his first order of business was to paint it completely black. 
On the weekends, he would be out spraying pesticide on all the living things on his property, so all that was left was dust and dirt. He was authentic, demented, and his tattooing emanated from a wildly creative and eccentric mind. Some of his work was disturbing. Entering Booth's shop in NYC was like entering a dark underworld. As he tattooed the side of my leg below the knee with a monster demon, he and I got a chance to know each other. His style of black and gray tattoo requires a lot of shading, and that requires multiple passes of the machine over already tattooed skin. I never felt such agony. I liked the finished piece, and it nicely complemented my other work. He was a good designer. The interior of his shop was proof of that. And considering the tour's sensibility, we hired him to design the artist's tents as well as set decorations for the stage and the festival village. Stonehenge had always been a part of my Tattoo the Earth vision. The first logo I'd made was the word spray-painted on a photo of Stonehenge. Booth came up with the idea to build a Stonehenge that people would walk through when they entered the festival village. He showed us drawings of what he was planning, and it was sick. And when I stood in a warehouse in New Jersey, staring up at the finished product, an almost full-sized, apocalyptic replica of Stonehenge, I was floored and inspired. Until I found out that each of the three huge sections would have to be cut in half to fit in a truck, and that we would need at least two extra trucks and a crew to take it on tour. On top of that, claiming artistic integrity, Booth hadn't used any flame retardant on the outside layer, and Stonehenge wouldn't pass the fire code. In fact, the chemicals he used to make it look amazing made it so super flammable that just sitting in the sun all day could make it immolate. We had to ditch it altogether. It's probably still sitting in the warehouse in New Jersey. Betsy and I were sad and reflective as we prepared to leave for the first show, which was scheduled for Portland, Oregon. Her mother, Marcia, had died a few months before the tour started at just 50 years old, and we still felt broken by it. Betsy had been deeply involved in her mother's care and traveling with the tour promised a welcome change and diversion from what had been a terrible time. Plus, I needed her there with me to watch my back and keep me sane. Despite everything, including my travails and misadventures, the two of us were doing well. Before we left, she cut her hair short and dyed it blonde, and she looked incredible. We had done this thing together, and we were completely united. At the airport, I asked how much it would cost to upgrade us to first class. It was over $2,000, just about the amount of credit we had left on our Amex card. We looked at each other, and I knew her answer without having to ask. We'll take the upgrade, I said, and pulled her closer to me.